This week on Geeksplained, we're kicking off a brand new month-long series where I dedicate the month of December to comics not under the umbrella of the big two. We're starting this creator-owned celebration by discussing a comic that dares to deconstruct the deconstruction of comics, as I put the Geeksplained spotlight on Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. Welcome to In December. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the first installment of a brand new annual tradition in December. This is where we're going to be dedicating the entire month of December to creator-owned and independent comics. I don't cover a lot of independent comics on the show, at least I haven't so far, so I'm really excited to dedicate this month every single year as long as we can keep this going uh, going forward to talking about comics that don't fall under the umbrella of DC or Marvel. Uh, There's going to be a lot to cover and I can't wait to share this month with you. We are kicking off the first annual in December in a big, big way. Four incredible comics that I cannot wait to share the discussions we had with you this week we are doing peter cannon thunderbolt next week we'll be doing do a power bomb with matt draper the following week for christmas we'll be tackling grant morrison and dan mora's klaus or claws or however you want to pronounce it with dallas of the comics collective and we'll be rounding out this whole month with a discussion on the good asian with the writer of the good asian porn sock show i am very excited excited to share with you what will hopefully, fingers crossed, be an annual tradition going forward. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so make sure you stay tuned for that after the jump. But for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I put the Geeksplained spotlight in part one of In December on Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. I want to start by asking you a question. How much do you think has changed in comics since 1986? Think about it. You don't have to answer it right now. But think about it as we go along here, because that's also the question at the heart of this week's comic. 
Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, written by Kieran Gillen with art by Casper Wingard. This was a book that I don't think I was prepared to read when it was coming out. Um, this was around 2016, 2017. I had just moved to LA and I was, you know, obviously very, uh, very adverse to getting myself into a lot of new stuff. I had already made a huge change in my life going from the small-ish town of Tucson, Arizona, moving to the bright lights in the big city of Los Angeles. And so when it came to my comic books and when it came to all the uh, the media that I consumed, I had a comfort set, you know? I had stuff that I was comfortable with, something that I could, I knew that I could sink my teeth into and it would be familiar. It would be something that I could always know. I know this is good. I know I like this. I don't need to branch out. And so when I was recommended that I should read more, first of all, just more independent comics in general, but especially a comic that was coming out at the time called Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. I was not super into it. I read the first couple issues. I didn't really get what they were going for, and I ultimately dropped it. And that period of my life is very interesting to look back on now as we're looking at, you know, five, six years later. I wasn't prepared to change. I have always had a really hard time adapting to change, and I didn't know it at the time, but that book was made specifically for people and for readers like me. Because what this comic, what Peter Cannon Thunderbolt as a story aims to tell you is that things have changed and change is okay. Now, uh, getting into the creative team a little bit, uh, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt has an all-star cast when it comes to its creative team. Uh, Kieran Gillen, obviously, is known for stuff like Die, Once in Future. Uh, he's currently absolutely crushing it over with um, over at Marvel right now with all of his work on uh, X-Men. And he's just one of those writers who... You can look at and you know that regardless of whether you enjoy whether you enjoy the story or not, it's going to have a perspective. It's going to have a plan and it's going to have a it's it's gonna have a message to tell. And then you pair that with someone like Casper Wingard, who I was not overly familiar with, but when I first read this way back, uh, in the far flung before times of the mid 2010s. Uh, the one thing that I did really enjoy about this, even though I didn't really enjoy the story, was the art. I thought it was beautiful. And when you set out to tell a story like the one we're talking about this week, having the right artist is everything. Because not only are you playing with several different characters, locations, you're also dealing with differing styles. You're dealing with visual storytelling which at its heart comic books are visual storytelling if it weren't for the art we'd be reading novels or short stories every single week can you imagine you imagine a world where short stories uh took the place of comic books that would be an interesting world to check out uh but what casper wingard here does here in this story is allows not just the writing 
to inform the characters, inform the narrative, inform the reader really about what's going on, the art in itself is telling its own story independent of the narrative, which I think is crazy. And a lot of that has to do also with the colorist. Mary Safro does the um, does the colors for this, and the colors are absolutely gorgeous. You can tell that there was a lot of love and a lot of intention put into every page, every layout, and every structure when you're talking about both the structure of the story as well as the structure in the actual framing of this story. And everything is all pulled together by, I believe it's letters by Hassan Otsmane Elhau. Uh, if I said that wrong, I absolutely apologize. But the letters are fascinating to me because I think lettering is an unsung uh, hero when it comes to comics. Not a lot of people know what it takes to be a good a good letterer, but they know what a bad letterer looks like. <laughs> if you have a bad letterer in your comic, that is going to be immediately what jumps out to you. And when it comes to a story, a delicate story, like the one they're trying to weave here, making sure that there are no weak links is vital. And this is 100% a book that I can tell you, as a reader who did not enjoy it the first time I read it, no weak links. No weak links whatsoever. But what is Peter Cannon? Peter Cannon was this old school um, superhero who was kind of in the same vein as like a, like a Miracle Man. But not like the super gritty Miracle Man, like the classic Miracle Man. Peter Cannon as a character was a very un... I don't want to say undynamic, but he was very simplified, like many uh, many characters were at the time that he was created. And that gives you a lot to play with when you modernize a character. It's the same thing that when they decided, okay, we're going to bring back Marvel Man and turn him into Miracle Man, uh, they had a lot of stuff that they could play with when it came to the canon, when it came to playing with that canon and with this with peter cannon funnily enough there is so much that you can play with and yet what the team on this book decides to do is take the stuff they like and throw out literally everything else <laughs> and so when we get into the story it's a five issue miniseries which i think is the perfect length for this uh in the behind the scenes in the back matter of this uh if, if you get the collected edition uh kieran gillen talks about having enough material to stretch it to six and i believe it would have felt a little too stretched if they had gone to six issues I think the pacing of this book is phenomenal. I think the uh, transitions all feel really natural. Of course, there are characters that you want to spend more time with, but for what the story is trying to tell, perfect length, five issues. And so when we begin our story, we are introduced to Peter Cannon alongside his world's heroes. And the construction, we'll say, of the heroes in this has a lot of uh, familiarity 
to your layman's comic book reader, if this is their first dive into creator-owned books, I think this is a great place to do so, especially if they are familiar with DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and of course, Watchmen. And don't worry, we're going to get back to that in a second. But the characters that we are introduced to are this world's heroes, this world's Justice League, Avengers, whatever pastiche you want to name them. Peter Cannon is obviously the guy. He is the person who everyone kind of looks to to solve problems, most intelligent man on the earth. And he is complemented by this ragtag team of heroes. Uh, first off, we've ha- we have Baba Yaga, who is a Russian spy. Let me know if that sounds familiar to you, Marvel fans. Who uh, has a killer design with these, like, blade legs. Uh, it's really, really interesting. And she uh, is on the team with a character called Pyrophorus, who is a, ins- who is a-, a man in an insect armor right his uh, red and gold might sound familiar again to those of you who are familiar with your more mainstream heroes but he has a lot of similarities to another character that we will get into in a second uh the wild card we'll say of this team is called the test he is this super radical 90s character with pouches and guns galore and he there is no rhyme or reason to the test he is just there to blow shit up and is at the whim of his whimsy Rounding out the team, we have Nucleon, who is a radioactive, super strong character who is confined to a hazmat suit for most of her appearance. And then finally, we get kind of the de facto leader, Supreme Justice, who is a character who is not the apparently first Supreme Justice. The Supreme Justice, like that theory of James Bond being a mantle, is just a mantle that is passed. He is the Captain America, ultra-patriotic, will-do-anything-for-his-country, U.S. agent-style character. And this group has come to Peter Cannon because there is an invasion going on. A... a ridiculous-looking alien invasion, and what is amazing to me is how the story starts, because it starts with this quote. Full page, blank, only these words on the page. It's 35 minutes into the future. Relations between nations spiral ever downward. War, for so long distant, seems possible, even probable. Our heroes are impotent. Most people thought it couldn't get worse. Most people lack imagination. And so we see that there is an invasion going on. They've already destroyed an entire city. And these heroes are here because they need Peter Cannon's help. And immediately when this story starts, you get the scope and the scale. We've got full page splashes throughout the first four or five issues, or for the first four or five pages. And then we get introduced to Peter Cannon. And immediately, once Peter Cannon is introduced, we fall into something that is very familiar if you have been reading comics for a while, and it's the nine-panel grid. Three across, three down. And this nine-panel grid was popularized through the comic Watchmen, written by Alan Moore, art by Dave Gibbons. This comic is for a lot of people, the best comic ever made. 
This is the comic that made it so that comics weren't just for kids anymore, and comics could be radical and political and all this stuff, and dark and gritty. And Watchmen has left an indelible mark on not just readers, but also the comic industry as a whole. People hold it up as the benchmark for good comics. If your comic doesn't have, in some way, a homage to Watchmen, then your comic is garbage. And that's a lot, and that's what a lot of people view as kind of the the smell test for comic books. I don't myself subscribe to that particular perspective, but I do see it all the time. And if you feel this way, your feelings are valid. You're allowed to feel how you feel. But immediately what we see here is that Peter Cannon is just as familiar with the nine-panel grid as the reader is. In fact, he uses the nine-panel grid to his advantage. He uses it in his martial arts. He uses it in his storytelling. And Peter Cannon has mastered the nine-panel grid to the point that he can manipulate it to his will. It's so rote and so familiar to him that he doesn't feel a need to change. And what Peter decides to do is he consults his scrolls, which have always been the heart of his power, and at the behest of his uh, servant slash former lover Taboo, he decides to suit up and help the heroes dispatch this threat. So he is able to coordinate all of the heroes to get together and take out this alien armada. And through the use of his formalism and his familiarity with the nine-panel grid, he is able to coordinate strategic strikes on this armada to not just defeat them in this moment, but to drive them away from the planet for good. And as we see in the aftermath of this alien invasion, the world is no longer on the brink of war. Everyone's like, we need to band together so that we can make sure that this threat doesn't catch us unaware ever again. And while everyone else seems to be over the moon about this, world peace has been achieved, Peter Cannon lies uneasy. And as he heads back into his home and speaks to Taboo about the uh, events that have transpired, he reveals that this whole alien invasion wasn't an invasion at all. It was a hoax. A hoax designed to bring the people of this world together. And doesn't that sound familiar? As Taboo thinks about what kind of coordination it would take to make something like this happen, he says, who would even think of killing a city to try and save the world? And Peter responds that he did. Of course he did. He didn't, obviously, because it was immoral and likely wouldn't last but it's only something that he could think of and so he says right there at the conclusion of the first issue he says we are under attack from a peter cannon from another dimension and then we get a hard cut to said other dimension a very familiar looking structure built in the, I'm assuming, the Arctic. And as we see a nine-panel grid showcasing the response of the aftermath 
of the events that have transpired on this earth, we see that someone is watching. Someone is always watching. And he is delighted to find out that Peter Cannon has figured out his secret. And as it's revealed, this cloaked figure is in fact the other Peter Cannon. So going forward here, I'm going to be referring to our main guy as Cannon. Because he's the true Peter Cannon. He is our POV character. The villainous Peter Cannon, who is adorned in a very Ozymandias suit with the uh, gears of a clock uh, engraved, I guess, or burned into his forehead, not unlike Dr. Manhattan. We're going to call him the Thunderbolt. Because Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, that's his title. Uh, so So Peter Cannon, or Cannon for short, is going to be our main Peter. Thunderbolt is going to be the villainous Peter Cannon. And we've got one more Peter that we're going to get to in just a second. But what I love is that immediately by the end of this book, or at the end of this first issue, you know what this book is doing. It is telling you what happens next after Watchmen. Now, it's not just the design of Thunderbolt. Obviously, audacious-looking ornamental armor just like Ozymandias. He's got the clock gear burned into his forehead just like um, Dr. Manhattan had the atomic symbol in his head. This is also telling you we are going to take a story that everyone loves, well, maybe not everyone, that a lot of people love that is considered, you know, the greatest graphic novel ever created. And we're going to tell you why... It's a bygone, it's the, it's a relic of a bygone time. And the balls on this story to do that is just otherworldly. I know that I would be, I would bristle at the idea of trying to tackle a story telling you, hey, this comic that has been, you know, the benchmark for comic book storytelling for decades, we're going to tell you why it sucks. (laughs) And so... As we carry across this uh, story, we see more use of formalism, the strict adherence to the nine-panel grids, to having a solid uh, reverence for the Watchmen property, but also trying to let you know that there are problems with that story. And anyone who has read it more than once or who has even taken a little bit of time to look at that story, yes, obviously the artistry on the page is incredible. Dave Gibbons is doing some of the best work of his career. Alan Moore, even though he hates that comic like he like he hates most comics he ever created, uh, is firing on all cylinders at a time when he wasn't really a proven commodity yet. And there are, of course, homages to the story throughout. We have, obviously, the direct homages with the nine-panel grid, with the story premise, with Thunderbolt as a character. But there are little things, too. We have the uh, the table that the heroes are gathered around. Uh, the test, like, pukes up a bunch of uh, raspberries, and it looks like the blood mark on the smiley face on the comedian's button. You know, there's all kinds of homages almost making it uh almost making it way on the story and i think that's intentional i think kieran gillen looked at this story and 
said to himself and to Casper Wingard, we need to make sure the audience is familiar with all of the tropes that we are going to be uh, approaching and then breaking in half. Uh, I want to say they deconstruct it, but the the thesis of the story is that deconstruction might actually be a bad thing. Who knows? Uh, but as the story continues, we go for we start to learn more about canon and about his relationship with taboo that uh ended unfortunately because canon didn't like humanity he's the smartest person on earth and he hates the earth uh so he has been a terrible partner a terrible lover and taboo even though he knows this and broke off their romance ages ago, still sticks by him because he knows that he is Canon's uh, North Star. He knows that he is Canon's only tie to humanity, and he shudders to think at what might happen if he ever left Canon alone. Uh, there's all also tons of just fun uh, playing around with the idea of the nine-panel grid. We see uh, to get to cross over to the uh, two Thunderbolts Earth, they all get themselves into formation for a nine-panel grid. And due to that, they're able to unlock the secrets of the multiverse to send them to Thunderbolts Earth. And so we see that the heroes are making their way through a whole smattering of different Earths until they finally make their way to Thunderbolts reality. A completely just war-torn atomic winter Earth that only can't only Thunderbolt survived. He is the sole inhabitant of this Earth, sort of. Uh, it's on Thunderbolt's Earth that we meet Taboo again. Except it's not really Taboo. He has been turned into a robot. And the uh, the implications and the explanation of why Taboo is a robot is really, really dark. I don't want to get into it uh, just because it's a very heavy subject matter and you should read the comic. But it, it Taboo is a tragic character on this Earth. And when the heroes come up to uh, come face to face with Thunderbolt... It is a bloody massacre. Uh, this Peter Cannon Thunderbolt has gained somehow the powers of Nucleon, who is the pastiche for, of course, Dr. Manhattan. And if you couldn't already tell, the entire cast of this, of this ill-begotten star-crossed crew are pastiches of the Watchmen characters, right? So we've got Peter Cannon... Obviously, the Ozymandias of the crew. Nucleon is Dr. Manhattan. Supreme Justice is the comedian. The test is obviously Rorschach. And Baba Yaga is Silk Spectre. And uh, Pyro Pyrophorus? Pyrophorus? I don't know how to pronounce that correctly. Uh, is our Night Owl. And of course, those also feed into the original Charleston, Charleston, Charlton characters, Blue Beetle, um, uh, The Question, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, immediately when they get there, 
they run afoul of Thunderbolt and he massacres them all. He starts by killing Test in the same way that uh, Dr. Manhattan kills Rorschach, just splattering him, and he turns into a Rorschach uh, blood whatever on the wall behind them. He proceeds to uh, kill everybody else, right? But not before telling them about his story and how he came to be. Uh, he, just like Peter, came to this uh, came to this conclusion that if he could unite the world through a hoax, just like Ozymandias, then the world would know peace. And of course, it didn't work. It wasn't anywhere near the forever peace that he was planning. And unfortunately, the world devolved into nuclear war. This Thunderbolt decided if he couldn't save his Earth, he would save all of the other Earths, whether they liked it or not. And so he has been experimenting across the, uh, across the multiverse in very much the same way that the initial invasion seemed to uh, impact Cannon's world, right? He killed a city to save a world. And so Thunderbolt has decided he is going to kill a set number of worlds to save the entire multiverse. And when the heroes uh, tell him that they are not going to allow him to continue doing what he's doing, Thunderbolt does not take kindly to it. And so he kills Supreme Justice, pops his head off, uh, melts Pyrophorus inside of his suit, uh, kills Baba Yaga immediately as well, utilizing the nine-panel grid just as Cannon had. There's this really cool moment that I'd, I'd never seen before done in a comic where Baba Yaga is firing an energy blast at him and... Thunderbolt literally uses a panel from the grid as a shield, then moves himself around through the other panels to attack Baba Yaga. He then attacks Nucleon, seemingly from the future, because once Nucleon arrives, she becomes aligned vibrationally with the Nucleon of Thunderbolt's world, which was, of course, more like a Dr. Manhattan character. And so Nucleon is killed, uh, everybody else is killed, and he, Thunderbolt says, I have all this. You will no sooner best me than any of the other little echoes of my design. And we get one of the greatest sequential panels that I've ever seen in a comic book, where we have Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt himself, Cannon standing there, taking everything in, the fact that Thunderbolt has just mercilessly slaughtered the rest of his team and he goes I see and the next panel is him just hightailing it running the fuck away it is incredible uh, he runs back he utilizes uh, the test's blood to dry panel and then he is pushed through the panel by Thunderbolt and so we see uh, in much the same way of the uh, opening of the original Watchmen story canon falling through the in-between, the multiverse, much how uh, the comedian was thrown through the window of his uh, his penthouse and down to the streets below. And we see Cannon falling and falling and falling until he winds up smack dab into another universe where he meets Peter Cannon. 
and we get this beautiful rendition, this beautiful uh, art and uh, color change where all the color is sucked out. And it's much more, um, how, how do I say this? It's much more rough. It's not as like refined, which is, I, I love it. So Cannon meets Peter, who is just a guy. His world has no superheroes, no nothing. There's comic books, but he's just he's just a dude. And he has wound up in the 1993 of this world, right? The 1993 of, I guess, really just our world. Because as Canon and Peter start to talk... Peter is like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm a doctor, but he's like, I'm not really like that kind of doctor. I'm, you know, I've got a, I've got a PhD and stuff, but like, and so he just kind of gets to sit in the mundane of this world. Canon is surprised and kind of shocked that there is a world like this, but as he tells Peter his story, Peter's like, okay, I got to bring you to my guy and he meets this therapist dr k keep that in mind keep in mind all these characters that are involved here because they meet dr k canon tells him his story and dr k immediately believes him and he's like i need we need to go to a pub we need to go to uh we need to go figure this out um and i need you to tell me the rest of your story so thunderbolt decides he's gonna watch this and they go to this pub called The Clock, where we meet a cast of characters. We meet Lauren, behind, who's the bartender. Eddie, uh, who is a comic and uh, is currently drinking his sorrows away. Uh, we meet Danny and John, who are two friends who aren't... It's, it's unclear on the, uh, the romantic... Uh, entanglement that each of them has with Lauren. And then, of course, we have Dr. K and Peter. Now, if those names sound at all familiar to you, you would know that this is, of course, the Watchmen crew. Lauren is Lori. Eddie, uh, Lori, the Silk Spectre. Eddie is, of course, Ed, the comedian. Uh, Danny and John are Night Owl and Dr. Manhattan, respectively. And Dr. K is Kovacs, Rorschach, with, of course, Peter once again filling the uh, Ozymandias role. And so, Cannon realizes that him being here means that Thunderbolt will know where to find him. And so, Cannon goes out, he uses a... Uh, he uses a police box to call the police. Uh, by the way, all of this, the mundane world takes place exclusively in London. Or uh, just in England. I don't want to say London specifically in case we have any listeners over there who are like, oh, that's not even London. Um, but he basically tells the government like, hey, uh, there's going to be an alien invasion. Save this, uh, save this number. I know you think it's a hoax. When they show up, you can call. And so they go and as we get to learn about these characters, we get to see really how much, once again, how much perspectives have changed when it comes to uh, Watchmen and the comic book business as a whole. Uh, Canon gets into this conversation with Kovacs, 
who he is really confused. This person who immediately believes in alternate dimensions is also this therapist who seems like he's kind of just unenthused with the world, just like Canon is. Canon has hated the Earth as long as he's been on it. But he asks, he, he's genuinely curious. He asks uh, Dr. K, why do you help people? And and Dr. K brings up this uh, this incident that happened. Uh, I I know that this was a real incident, but uh, apparently this happened again in this quote-unquote real world as well. Um, a woman was killed in front of an apartment complex, and no one went to help. Uh, apparently the incident happened on Cannon's Earth as well, where he's like, ah, actually, uh, it was misreported. People did call for help. Uh, the woman in question was uh, Kitty Genovese. You can look those up. I don't want to get, again, too much into that because it's it's really sad to get into. Um, but he basically said, like, I was reading that and everything just became black and white. Because ah, they're in black and white world now. It's like, stuff like that murder, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, it's easy to turn hard into an us-against-you and then he get gives this line that if you have read and if you are familiar with uh, Watchmen with the character of Rorschach, you immediately know what it's homaging or what it's more or less arguing against. He says, you're not trapped in here with me. I'm not trapped in here with you. We're trapped in here with each other, so we should make the best of it. Herm? Giving the trademark Herm that... Rorschach would always give um, and he makes an excellent point I think the problem with Watchmen the further we get away from it and the further that we go along in a society and in the comic book industry is that Watchmen at its core was meant to deconstruct superheroes the story was brought together in an attempt to show how much the comic book industry and how much superheroes as an idea have changed in the mid 80s where things were a little bit darker things were a little bit more cynical more pessimistic and what has happened since then is that yes people have doubled down absolutely on the darkness of heroism there is not a day that can go by without some discourse on Twitter or otherwise with people going, oh, you know, why Why does Superman have to wear red trunks? It's not realistic. It looks stupid. And, I mean, the answer is because he looks better with them and it's comic books. But I think the further we get away from the, this idea that we have to reinvent the wheel and find problems and find, you know, holes in the idea of superheroes and in heroism in general, we start to realize that that is a form of formalism in itself. It's a comfortable thing to be able to say, oh, yeah, you know superheroes were what you know kids are into i'm into the real hardcore stuff you know fucking liefeld is my god and like all this stuff and i hate to even bring it up because i know it's gonna attract the wrong kind of people but there was this whole kerfuffle a couple years back with uh zack snyder 
who was arguing against the idea of Batman not killing and Superman and, you know, basically giving the idea that if you are, if you in any way believe your heroes don't kill people, then you are, you're living, in his words, in a dream world. And I love when people bring this up, right? I love seeing that clip. It, it should make me irrationally angry because it goes against everything I believe in. But I love when people bring up that stuff because then you can point to the comic books. You can point to the material and show them why that doesn't work. There's a seminal comic, iconic classic that everyone knows at this point as well. It's a Superman, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Or, no, that's a different one. It's Superman, Whatever Happened to Truth, Justice, and the American Way. And it was later adapted into Superman vs. the Elite, a movie that does not get the praise that it should because it had a very odd animation style, but it's gorgeous, where Superman looks at the cynicism of the world, represented by the Elite in Manchester Black, and he says, good. Like, to that idea of you know there being truth justice and a better tomorrow that's you know that's fantasy and he says good fantasy is hope fantasy lifts us up fantasy allows us to strive to be better people and we should fight for that and that's what this story is telling you as well it's the argument against telling people yeah everything needs to be cynical everything needs to be you know bad all the time because if it's happy or if it's hopeful or if it's god forbid fun it's unrealistic and realism doesn't always mean pessimism right realism doesn't have to be everything is terrible all the time realism can be hey people are really good sometimes i see people every day whether it's in my day-to-day life, whether it's on social media, whether it's, you know, stories I hear about of people being good people because it's the right thing to do. And the idea that we have to question that, that we have to um, make fun of that or break that down or deconstruct it because we see a problem in something that is inherently good is something that people hold on to a little too tight. I think. Um, And as Canon is beginning to make this realization himself, he's realizing just how different things can be, how he doesn't need to stick to formalism. He doesn't need to stick to the things that he knows. Canon realizes in spending his time at the clock with these people, he doesn't hate people. He might hate the earth, he might hate what it represents, but he doesn't hate people. Because people have the capacity to be good. Canon has always looked at stuff, at least as we can infer from the story, as people are rotten and this world should burn and what's more, what's one more log in the fire if people die? And it's through his interactions with what come to be uh, called the clock crowd that he realizes there is inherent goodness in people. There is a duty of care that he has having power to protect people who can't protect themselves. It's it's a tale as old as time. With great power comes great responsibility. And it's here that he learns that. And he also learns that you don't have to stick 
to the nine panel grid in this world because there are strange instances of narration and this narration is his thoughts he's realizing you know what can be rather than what has been and when he realizes you know that you know the aliens have arrived into this world turning it from a mundane world to an extraordinary world he tells the government this isn't your problem i'll do what i can and he looks at these people and i'm just going to read the narration here because i think it's gorgeous uh he says or the narration says when peter cannon arrived here he thought these people were less than him smaller Pete is 40, like Cannon, but Cannon is Hollywood 40, and Pete is Northampton 40, which I think is hilarious. Uh, Hollywood 40 is now like the new uh, Hollywood 25. And so he says, Pete is real in a way that Cannon isn't. This is real in a way which Cannon isn't. And Cannon realizes the horrible truth, the feeling he was trying to place earlier as he met these people and learned about their lives he realized the feeling was envy he puts he takes pictures of the clock crowd puts them up on a wall in six uh six pictures of all the people here and he realizes i need to use formalism to break formalism he says i studied enough and tells Pete, thank you. He leaves, and we see the we see that he has written down the clock crowd, the night we saved the world, with these photos of everybody. Pete, the doctor, Lauren and Danny, Johnny, Eddie, and then a picture of Cannon as the weird guy we never saw again. And as we head into the final uh the final chapter of the story we see that canon once again has to uh has to take on thunderbolt in a way that he hasn't been able to before um he arrives and he tells thunderbolt he you stop the attack on pete's world the world i just came from and i'll tell you how to travel to other dimensions Thunderbolt stops it immediately. We see back in Pete's world, there was a it was a hoax. The London Times, uh, mass hoax in Britain. And so Peter or Cannon turns to Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt's like, okay, tell me what the secret is to traversing the multiverse. Because Thunderbolt can send attacks to other worlds, but he himself can't leave because he is bound by the nine panel grid he is bound by formalism he is unwilling to change and so when there is an there is a moment when there is a little bit of change when the formalism momentarily breaks thunderbolt doesn't know how to handle it canon goes to whisper in his ear how to traverse the worlds and we see the narration from Pete's world come back and Thunderbolt doesn't know how to deal with this he's seeing past the uh past the nine panel grids as he always has but now he's seeing something unfamiliar he says the narration says he was right of course that's what made it worse Thunderbolt was more powerful than him in all ways 
more powerful in all ways but one. Yes, Cannon wasn't, wasn't a person in any way that counts. That pained him. But what faced him was less of one, with no desire to be anything but what he already was. And so we get to see the fundamental difference between Cannon and Thunderbolt. Cannon, at his core, is not able to see other people as people. He sees them as ants, and he is unwilling to change until he meets Pete in the clock crowd, until he's able to see the beauty in the mundane, in ordinary people. And he realizes that he does have a capacity to change, whereas Thunderbolt does not. Thunderbolt has been so unwilling to change that he has trapped himself in a prison of his own making for 30 years. Thunderbolt mentioned earlier in the story how he killed the world 30 years ago, and he's been trying to fix the multiverse ever since. And so Cannon is able to get the upper hand on him and is raining down blows on him, and he says, in the end, this, all of this, you did it 30 years ago. Which is not just a shot at Thunderbolt, but is a shot at Watchmen. For all its faults, for all of the... Um, things that people can sling, all the insults, all the uh, criticisms that people can sling at Watchmen for its time, it was iconic. It was groundbreaking. It had never been seen before, and in that, it has value. It pushed the medium and it pushed the industry forward in a way that it desperately needed in the mid-80s. But it's not the mid-80s anymore. Deconstruction has now become less in vogue than it was. And a lot of the people that hold on to Watchmen as this, you know, god among comics, as the greatest comic ever made, are unwilling to change with the times. We see all over the place now, oh, the MCU, woke comics, SJWs. It's a defense mechanism. Because they are unwilling, just like Thunderbolt, to change. And they are unwilling to take themselves out of the cage that they have locked themselves in. Because they fear leaving comfortability. And I think when I read this for the first time, I was struggling with that myself. I was struggling with change. I was struggling with trying to hold on to everything that was without being able to welcome what is and what could be. And we figure out, and this is mentioned in another comic that I absolutely love that I will cover on the podcast someday, The Omega Men, that the nine-panel grid isn't just nine panels. You also have to look at the gutters, the white space between the panels, because what they form isn't just a, uh, a way for us to see three by three panels. The gutters are bars. The gutters form a cage around the story. And there are absolutely stories that can be told with the nine panel grid and good ones. I think if anyone is as good as Kieran Gillen is here utilizing the nine panel grid, it's Tom King, who I love. 
but it doesn't give you any kind of freedom to tell stories. It doesn't give you the freedom to express yourself in ways outside of the formalist nine-panel grid. And so when uh, Thunderbolt decides, I'm going to escape, and I'm going to try and utilize your trick to get out of this, we see him falling through the multiverse, but he comes up against another nine-panel grid. And because he is unwilling to change, he only wants to turn the rest of the multiverse into his own formalism and to bring what he has held on to for 30 years to everything else. It's his undoing. The nine panels divide him. Literally. Pieces of Thunderbolt fall throughout the multiverse because he is cut to pieces by the borders of the nine-panel grid. He was unwilling to change. And so, Canon, in the aftermath of this, takes Taboo back to his, his home reality alongside the uh, remains of his former teammates. And he has this... Uh, he has this moment with Taboo at the end. He says, I neglected you. I wish I hadn't. You were right. It was always easier for me to be superhuman. But I am not afraid of not easy. I must be better. I will be better. The whole thing about comfort, about comfortability, is that it feels easy, right? It feels like you have control. And change is terrifying. Change is not comforting. Change is, you know, the great unknown. It could be anything. And that's inspiring, but it's also terrifying. It's horrifying. But what Canon admits to Taboo here is that he was afraid of change. And now, through this whole ordeal, he has learned to embrace it. And in that, he and Taboo are able to reconnect. The two share a kiss... And Taboo asks, it's a start. Do we have a future? And Cannon looks directly at the camera and he says, I leave it entirely in your hands. A wonderful comic book ending that leaves the story up to the reader. But it's not over yet. The ending isn't an ending. Because there's one more page. We see the two of them staring at each other, and Cannon remarks. He says, ah, that would be too obvious, too easy. Knowing that him just going off into the sunset and being like, yep, everything's great now. It's too easy. And change is never easy. Being better, he says, is not, is not easy. And Taboo says, but the easy is at least a start. And sometimes the easiest, the hardest of all. And at that moment, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt realizes that it's a trap. Repeating easy signifiers, repeating, you know, formalism, repeating what's comfortable. And he breaks the nine panel grid, allowing more creativity. He says the, the mistake that other me made is this, repeating easy signifiers. We must at least try something else. 
And he says, the point isn't to just do this. It's to find what can be done. The point is to beat back the impossible. If there are to be humans, real or fictional, super or otherwise, they should be the best they can be. Tabu asks, do you think that's possible? And he says, I have no idea. Let's find out. And with the story of Peter Cannon Thunderbolt and with the idea that he brings up that he doesn't really know what comes next. And that's kind of the point. Formalism and comfort is easy, but we don't exactly live in a bubble. Some people do, and it's unfortunate because they are unwilling to allow themselves to grow and to change. And what this story posits is that instead of remaining loyal and remaining, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but remaining unwilling to let go of something that came out 30 years ago, when it comes to Watchmen, when it comes to the idea of deconstruction, the idea of trying to find a problem in the spectacular, in the amazing, you lock yourself and you don't allow yourself to grow and you don't allow yourself to experience all that life has to offer if you are just focused on repeating the same thing every single time. And I want to leave you with this, this quote that Kieran Gillen gives in the back matter of the graphic novel. Again, I would absolutely uh, recommend checking out the graphic novel itself because it gives you breakdowns of the story, the pitch, the analogs, the idea behind this. He writes, What comes next? They don't know. He's the smartest man in the world, speaking about Peter, and any man that smart knows a world is more than enough to care about. He has no experience in caring, but he'd like to try. What comes next? They don't know. That's the entire point. Every day, we remake the world. And I love that. Every day, you get a chance to make the world a little bit better. Why would you focus your time on making it worse? Every single day, we get the opportunity to grow, to change, to become greater than we could have imagined and every day we get the choice to make the world what we want it to be every single day we get to make our own canon and that's with one n because we get to decide what comes next i don't know what tomorrow looks like but i can't wait to find out Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explain Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, there were a few contenders, but ultimately I gave it to Avengers Assemble Alpha Number One, written by Jason Aaron, art by Brian Hitch. Uh, this was a great 
great first chapter for the gigantic Avengers Assemble final act of uh, Jason Aaron's Avengers run. Lots of plates spinning, a great cast of characters, and a lot of intrigue. I have no idea how this this story is going to wrap up, but I... I'm going to let you know I am in for the ride all the way through. So definitely pick that up, especially if you've been enjoying the Jason Aaron run, because this is going to be it. Once this Avengers uh, Assemble event is done, so is Jason Aaron's time on the book. So you are going to want to keep your eyes glued to these pages. But that's last week. This week, we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 12 books for you to check out. We're back in double digits, baby. So let's go ahead and get this started with a double dose of Spidey books. Uh, First off, we've got Dark Web number one. This is the big Spider-Man slash X-Men event of the winter, I suppose. Uh, This is written by Zeb Wells with art by Adam Kubert. And I'm very excited to see what they do with this. Uh, Ben Riley and Madeline Pryor are teaming up. Two of my favorite unsung heroes of Marvel Comics are teaming up to bring the world down crashing on Spider-Man and the X-Men. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Dusk. All the real boys and girls. Dusk! The two most famous clones ever are back to take what's theirs. Ben Riley and Madeline Pryor have had enough and are reigniting the Inferno. Spider-Man and the X-Men are not ready for what's coming, and what role does Venom have in all this? The sun is setting, dusk is approaching, and it's going to be a long night. So yeah, lots of stuff going on there. I am very excited to see what they put together for this. Uh, Also, this past weekend, I attended uh, LA Comic Con, and Zeb Wells was an absolute treasure. So uh, shout out to Zeb for a great conversation, great chat we had. Uh, And also on the docket for Spider-Man this week is Spider-Man number three. This is written by Dan Slott with art by Mark Bagley. This book is very intriguing. I have no idea where it's going to go. The last couple issues have been an absolute roller coaster. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. End of the Spider-Verse, Part 3, Spinning Out of Control. The end of the Spider-Verse rages on. Spider-Man and Night Spider have to make an impossible heist against impossible odds. If you thought the first issue was shocking, think again, because this issue is going to shake you to your core. I don't know uh, what that is referring to, because I was very shaken up by that first issue. Uh, If you know, you know, so I am... A little afraid as to what uh, they've got in store for us this time, but very excited to pick this up. Next up, we have Fantastic Four number two. This is written by Ryan North, but with art by Ivan Coelho. And I am I'm really intrigued to see what they do with this book, because the first issue was more like a... It felt like an annual, because it was a story that wasn't centered around the Fantastic Four altogether. It was a, uh, it was a Ben and Alicia story story that kind of alluded to a greater mystery so i am curious to see if we get more information on that mystery uh in this issue so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis the night of doom reed and sue are on the run from well a lot of things actually things are not going great for the fantastic four But 
they find themselves in even more trouble when they stop in a small town with a terrible secret. That terrible secret is revealed literally on the second page of this issue, and Reed and Sue spend the rest of the issue trying to survive it. But stop reading here if you don't want it spoiled. Yep, it's Reed and Sue versus a town of full of killer doombots. Uh, that's interesting. I wish they hadn't given that up in the synopsis, though I don't, I'm not sure what that, how that benefits them, you know, to do that. It is interesting that this is the second of two issues that involves uh, our main characters stopping in a small town with a mystery going on. I'm wondering if that's intentional, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm very interested to see what they do. Next up, we have Immortal X-Men number nine. This is written by Kieran Gillen, also the writer of our book from this week, with art by Lucas Wernick. And, I mean, Immortal X-Men rules. It just does. It's a fantastic book. It might be, it and X-Men Red are jockeying for position for the best X book right now. But I've been really, really loving it. The last issue was phenomenal. So I'm excited to see what they do here. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Vote, die, repeat. Putting the meat in office meeting. Trust me, bad spelling is the least of the Quiet Council's problems as everything hits the fan. Sins of Sinister prelude. Yeah, so we know Sins of Sinister is the next big X-Men event alongside Dark Web, kind of. So I am... I I don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that there are many more Sinisters at play here, and it is going to be fascinating to see what Kieran Gillen has in store after just having wrapped up Judgment Day. Uh, speaking of X-Men books that are incredible, uh, next up we have X-Men Red number 9. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Stefano Caselli, and again... X-Men Red, freaking rules, just like Immortal X-Men. They are coming, again, hot off the heels of Judgment Day, where I feel like the status quo of X-Men Red got flipped upside down. So I'm really, really curious to see how Ewing and friends are able to recover from that. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Check and mate. Abigail Brand enters her endgame, and on Araco, the diplomatic zone is beset by a firestorm of violence. On the world farm, Cable is learning the secrets behind it all, but the biggest secret has yet to be revealed. It's Roberto da Costa's turn to play, and you won't see it coming. Uh, I guess we'll see! We'll see what happens! Uh, it... Weirdly enough, it feels like X-Men Red is heading towards, like, an endgame of sorts. I don't believe it's, like, a 12-issue maxi, but that gives me pause. I'm not sure. I hope it's an ongoing, because, I mean, Al Ewing freaking rules. So, we will just have to see. Next up, we have Daredevil number 6. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Cicchetto. And... I mean, what else can I say? Daredevil rules. Daredevil is fantastic. Uh, the Red Fist saga has been living up to all of the hype, and I'm excited to see what the next step has in store for us. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Red Fist Saga Part 6. In the most shocking issue... A lot of stuff. A lot of, a lot of stuff promising this. In the most shocking issue of Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto's landmark Daredevil epic yet, Elektra finds herself at the center of an international incident that threatens to put her, Matt Murdock, and everything they hold dear on a collision course with the Avengers. After which, things may never be the same. Yeah, at the, la at the end of the last issue, we saw that the Avengers officially are putting Daredevil on notice. So we'll have to see 
what Daredevil and uh, Daredevil have in store. The Daredevils are going to be uh, public enemies number one and two uh, coming out of this, I'm sure. So I'm I'm really excited to see what they do here. Next up, we have Dark Crisis War Zone number one. This is written by Frank Thierry, Matthew Rosenberg, Delilah S. Dawson, Jeremy Adams, and Stephanie Williams. Also met Jeremy Adams this past weekend, and he was Fantastic. Really, really great conversation about the Flash we had. Uh, with art by Tom Derenick, Fernando Pazarin, Daniel uh, Bayliss, George Kembades. I'm so sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly. Caitlin Yarsky and Serge Acuna. Uh, this looks to be another one of those like on the ground level, uh, big old Dark Crisis war tie-ins. Uh, we'll see. It's It seems like an anthology tie-in with the amount of creators and the amount of characters on the cover. So let's dive into the synopsis and find out. A boots-on-the-ground view of Dark Crisis. Well, there you go. As the Hall of Justice falls, get new perspectives on the various conflicts while the battle rages across dark crisis with the classic justice league members gone see how members of the next generation such as red canary and the flash family deal with the chaos in this key chapter of the saga leading into dark crisis number seven yeah so on the cover here we've got specter raven joe mullane wally and red canary i still have no clue what red canary's deal is we got a little bit of it with the last dark crisis tie-in but more flash family i'm into so i will of course be picking this up next up we have captain america sentinel of liberty number seven this is written by jackson lansing and colin kelly who were absolutely wonderful at la comic-con i keep harping on it but i got to meet so many cool people uh with art by carmen carnero who they had nothing but stellar things to say this team is wonderful i absolutely love chatting with uh, jackson and colin this past weekend and uh we just got to gush about Captain America. So it was really, really cool. Hope to uh, hopefully get them on the podcast. That would be very, very cool. Uh, so this is issue number seven. This is kicking off a brand new arc entitled The Invader. And uh, if you've seen a preview for this, you know I'm very excited. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Invader Part One on a Monday. The Invader starts here. Just when Captain America is ready to quit his pursuit of the Outer Circle, he receives intel on their next move, and a reminder that Steve Rogers is never without friends. Sharon Carter returns to help Steve assemble his allies for a new mission, but some shadows reach farther than even the world's best spies can predict. Yeah! 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 Very excited to continue on with this. I've been loving both cat books. They've been incredibly strong. Uh, last week's Captain America Sam Wilson issue uh, was just amazing. I've been loving both cat books, and I can't wait to pick this up for sure. Next up, we have... Batman number 130. This is written also by Chip Zdarsky with art by Jorge Jimenez and Leonardo Romero. Uh, this book rules. The failsafe arc has been fantastic. Zurin, our year one has been amazing. And I'm not sure where we're going next, but I'm very excited. Let's go ahead and dive into this synopsis. The final chapter in the failsafe arc reaches its brutal and stunning conclusion. Batman has one desperate final option. Will he walk away from it? The answer will shock you. Yeah, we'll see. Lots of shocking 
uncomprehensible uh, stuff in this week's uh, synopses. I'm hoping they all uh, beat the brief. Uh, the early days of the Dark Knight and his relationship with Zurinar continues in the backup. Yeah, very excited. Uh, Chip Zdarsky's swinging for the fences this week if this and the Daredevil synopses are anything to go by, so we will just have to see if they play out that way. Next up, we have The Variants number 5. This is written by Gail Simone with art by Phil Noto and Betsy Cola. Uh, the Variants has been amazing. I think this might be the last issue of it, but please give me more Jessica Jones mysteries. Give me more Gail Simone writing stuff like this. I've been absolutely loving it. Can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. In this heart-stopping conclusion, Jessica discovers who is actually behind the appearance of the variants who have been ruining her life, but it may be too late to stop them from destroying the multiverse. I don't like the premise behind that, because what I've loved about this is that it's a multiversal story that has very personal stakes. Um, I don't want it to be this giant, like, oh, the multiverse is gonna crash! But... We'll see. I have faith in the story. The story's been fantastic. The art has been gorgeous. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing how they wrap this whole thing up. But the big two books of the week, the books I think you should absolutely be picking up, are first, Gotham City Year One. Written by Tom King with art by Phil Hester, this book rules i love this book so much um you've got slam bradley you've got tom king you've got phil hester doing a detective noir telling the story of how gotham city fell to ruin i i i love this i love stories like this this was one of the things that i loved about the uh, dlc for and this is a deep gaming cut uh bioshock infinite where they told the story of how rapture fell to shit uh i i love stuff like this i love prequel stories that draw on the lore of the surrounding uh, setting and all the stories that have come before it. So I am very much looking forward to this. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Slam Bradley has been one step behind the kidnappers the entire time. Can he turn the tables in time to save the infant heiress to the Wayne fortune? Is this hardened private investigator prepared to deal with a dark, deadly twist that will define Gotham City for generations to come? I'm going to say he might be a little too late, seeing as how this is issue three in a 12-issue series. <laughs> we still have nine issues to go! I don't know what uh, what is coming, but I can tell you I cannot wait to read it. But the other big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Do a Powerbomb number seven by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer. This book is very, very close to becoming the greatest book of the year. Best comic of the year if it sticks the landing, which we will have to see. I have faith in Mike Spicer and Daniel Warren Johnson. I think they are... Just a duo in comics that you can put your absolute faith in and know that you're going to be getting a great story. Uh, we'll have to see, though. There are a lot of things they have to wrap up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the final issue of this series. Lona Steelrose and Cobra Sun must face the ultimate challenge on their path to resurrecting Lona's mother. Will they be successful? Ah, I can't wait. The cliffhanger from last issue had me reeling, so I am so excited to see what they've got in store for Lona and Cobra Sun. But that is going to do it for this week's 
comics countdown make sure you actually pay attention and pick up to a powerbomb number seven because as you heard me say at the top of this episode i'm going to be covering the entire event the entire series with full spoilers next week with returning guest matt draper so make sure you check out do a powerbomb and check out all of these comics to recap we've got dark web number one spider-man number three fantastic four number two immortal x-men number nine x-men red number nine daredevil number six dark crisis warzone number one captain america sentinel of liberty number seven batman number 130 um the variants number five gotham city year one number three and do a powerbomb number seven so many good comics december is coming in hot with the comic books and i have a feeling that they aren't going to slow down anytime soon and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast you can write literally whatever you want and i will be forced to read it as long as you give me those five stars the sky's the limit on what you can write and you'll be able to join the likes of our red 13 including seafire nd joshua pounds to pixels matt draper burrito man 88 doug from for every kind of geek don swanson that guy brian mouth dork dallas meeks amazing spider fan a lock and az sass and jedi jesse 20 want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews and i cannot wait to hear yours if you want to be part of the Geeksplain mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put Geeksplain mailbag in the subject header and I will read it here on the show. Like our good brother Garrett LaSource, who wrote in this week. Great to hear from you, Garrett. Uh, he writes, hello, Eric. Hello. I've recently discovered your podcast and cannot stop listening. What you recently said regarding Jeff Loeb deeply moved me. It's genuinely upsetting to me to know that there are people in the comic industry who make you, of all people, feel unwelcome or like you have less of a story to tell based on your ethnicity thank you i i appreciate that it's it's tough when you have a writer especially one that you used to love um that really just uh just does not make you feel welcome so uh thank you for saying that i do appreciate that uh continuing on he writes also my mind was blown the other night because i too saw spider-man no way home on opening night at none other than the amc at the santa anita mall that's wild garrett uh we probably saw each other maybe we did who knows uh if you <laughs> if you remember that night just running through the rain if you saw two hooligans running through the uh running through the parking lot um that was us that was me and my boy john uh he writes, anyway, I wanted to pose a hypothetical. If you could cast any, I mean any director to direct a superhero film, who would you go with? For me, it would be a Daredevil film directed by Martin Scorsese, since Daredevil has always struck me as the taxi driver of Marvel. Once again, love the podcast. Happy holidays, Garrett LaSource. Garrett, thank you so much for writing. Uh, that's hilarious to me uh, with the whole Scorsese Marvel drama that's been going on. Uh, I think he would crush it in a Daredevil movie. Um, I think Charlie Cox is one of those great actors that you could very easily see working with a Scorsese, but he'd never do it, right? Uh, Scorsese has this blood feud <laughs> with Marvel Comics, and I guess superhero comics in general. Um, but if it were up to me, if you were up to me, um, hmm, that is, that is an interesting question, because there are some projects that I think are 
doing really well right now. Um, and some directors that I think are really great. Um, hmm. <laughs> you know, I think it would be... Hmm. I think it would actually be fascinating if we could get something like a new Superman film, but not like Superman, like Super Hyphen Man, like a Kong Keenan film directed by like a, like a Bong Joon Ho or or an Ang Ang Lee. I think would be fascinating to have him come back to the superhero space to do a to do a uh, Kong Keenan uh, film. I th I mean. I just think it would be cool. Whether it's uh, animated, whether it's live action, I think it'd be very cool. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw my hat in with, uh, with Ang Lee. I think you could even, I mean, if you want to go across the pond as well, uh, Daniel Destin Cretton, who just did... Um, who did Shang-Chi, I think he's got a great voice for superhero media in relation to the Asian American experience. So having him helm a Kong Keenan, or even, I mean, just to, to, to do an Iron Fist, do a half Asian Iron Fist, you could do a ton of things. I'm sure Iron Fist is going to pop up somewhere. But I kind of love the idea of an Ang Lee uh, new Superman movie. So that'll probably get my vote. Uh, Garrett, thanks so much for writing in. Once once again, if you want to be part of the Geeksplained mailbag, just write in, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put Geeksplained mailbag in the subject header and I will read it here. If you want to follow up with the podcast, if you want to keep up to date with everything going on with us, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter for as long as Twitter goes for. Um, at Geeksplained Pod is the handle at Geeksplained P-O-D. Give us a follow. We are very nearly, you know, before... Twitter inevitably collapses. We're very nearly heading towards 400 followers. If we could finish out the year with 400 followers on Twitter, that would be fantastic. So if you haven't already, give us a follow on there. That would be wonderful. It genuinely does help us and it helps the podcast with reach and all that weird... Um, algorithm stuff that tends to be very important for podcasts to succeed so yeah feel free to give us a follow on there would definitely appreciate it finally every single friday i alongside my amazing friends malcolm russell nelson and jacob brown put on the geek explain book club uh we are currently going through the final act of ultimate spider-man we are very nearly approaching the end uh it's it's kind of crazy we just had cataclysm last week it was a huge episode for us uh really loved putting that episode together probably some of the most fun i've ever had <laughs> recording for the book club and this week the ultimate universe continues on past ultimate cataclysm and we are covering the entire 12 issues of miles morales the ultimate spider-man written by brian michael bendis art by dave marquez uh there is a lot to talk about in this series so make sure you tune in for that on friday for miles morales the ultimate spider-man issues one through 12 spidey fridays are a thing so be there or be square not a circle 
But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, part two of December is going to focus on, again, what might be the best comic of 2022. We're going to find out. We're going to talk about it all alongside returning guest Matt Draper as we cover Do a Powerbomb by Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spicer. Make sure you are there next week for part two of In December. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe and we will see you next time. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle-belling And everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year it's the half happiest season of all With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings When friends come to call It's the half happiest season of all There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting And caroling out in the snow There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the Scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time. Yes, the most wonderful time Oh, the most wonderful